are just joining us. This is the Montpelier Happy Hour. I am your host, Olga Peters. My co-host is Rep. Emily Kornheiser, and my guest is Peter Elwell, t Elwell Town Manager for the town of Brattleboro. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Peter. So glad you can be here. And can you just say hello one more time to check your mic? Sure. One more time to check my mic. That's You sound beautiful, but so we can hear your lovely voice. Get right on there top of it. Go. I hear it now. Okay. <laughs> Good afternoon. Um, before our break, Peter, we, Emily and I were talking about governance and democracy and how we feel that representation and access and transparency is really key right now mm -hmm. for democracy at the select board level. How do you see the select board's role in that and how do you see your role as town manager in per helping people access government and, and the democratic process? Sure. So um, before I go into the specific answer about how it, I think, ought to work and how we try to make sure that it does work here in Brattleboro, um, I'd like to just quickly um, support what you were describing about the importance of um, transparency and access in general. Um, so I, I, we're, we have a really heightened awareness around that now, and there's good that comes from that, even though a lot of the source of that awareness is um, distressing. Um, but I would suggest that we need to be careful even in times that feel like better times and feel like we're functioning more effectively as a government and, um, you know, sort of everybody's needs are being taken care of more sufficiently, um, that the whole purpose of governance and government in a democratic society is to promote um, opportunities for engagement and collective decision-making about the our collective welfare. And so... Um, you know, hopefully most of us who choose to do this as a career um, take that to heart as being sort of um, part of why we do it and a particular obligation we have in the doing of it. Um, how does that come to the, the uh, details that you're asking about for Brattleboro? So um, we've had really good examples of broad community engagement in Brattleboro this summer um, that point to the degree of accessibility of our local government. So. Um, Sometimes that actually gets cumbersome and makes decision-making more difficult, but that's a necessary part of our process. Um, you know, totalitarianism is very efficient. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> but it's not the government we want in our community or in our country. And so um, that means sometimes we need to slow down a little bit. It means sometimes we need to make sure that people do have an opportunity to be heard. Um, I think that the current board has really, um, in a really open and obvious way, committed itself to having the select board meeting room be a place that everybody can come to and everybody can participate in the discussions that are being had there. And at the same time, um, the select board has a responsibility to conduct the town's business. And so um, where that gets to be um, more art than science is in the... Um, decisions that have to be made about how long to allow a certain discussion to go on, how long to allow a certain individual to go on when it's something that's already been said in that discussion that day, but that individual's only getting maybe their first turn to participate. These are not easy decisions. They may seem like they ought to be, um, <laughs> but if we apply the um, you know, sort of absolute openness litmus test to it, then we don't have enough structure for um, people to understand sort of where is their opportunity to participate or for the board to get to closure and make a decision and move on to the next issue. And so um, that's a balancing act that's going on all the time in the big policy issues in the public arena. 
in the meantime, we in, on town staff make ourselves as accessible as we can be. I put my cell phone number in the town report every year. I invite people please to call me and um, come see me if you've got a concern about town government, if you need to understand how to access some aspect of town government. And at the department head level and down to street level, we try to be a fully accessible local government. In part because shame on us if we can't do that in a town of 12,000 people. Mm. But in part because even in larger settings um, where there's more um, layers of government, it's just the right thing to do. Um, we exist to serve um, the community. Um, and we need to make sure that people in the community who have a concern about what's going on in town have an opportunity to be engaged with us. Peter, I don't know if you did your homework very, very well. And in fact, listened to all of our previous podcasts before you came on. <laughs> but you have exactly quoted our last two guests. Wow. So we had Susan Clark on who wrote Slow Democracy and was speaking um, quite consistently about this, exactly the idea of slow democracy, about how sometimes we have to move slow in a democracy in order to have everyone along with the decision making. We talked to Mike Donahue, who was in that conversation, we exactly use the example of totalitarianism as very efficient, mm -hmm. but the point of democracy is access. So mm -hmm. really appreciate how you're bringing all of that Thank back you. to light. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> um, and I'm really, when I think about sort of that transparency and how more people can be part of the process, it's, when people are making decisions, that's really interesting to me. I find mm. that we often show up at meetings once we're already at the decision point, mm. and often that's too late. And mm -hmm. so I've been thinking a lot about how we bring more people on when the choice of before we're at A, B, or C, mm -hmm. when we're still at, is there even a problem or what is the problem? Sure. Um, so in the sort of clinical sense of how the select board functions, that's what public participation is for and receiving emails and phone calls and that sort of, um, you know, anybody in the community being able to say, hey, wait a minute, I think we should address this. And that's how something right. gets on the agenda. Right, yeah. and, and then um, I'd also encourage, if it's, if, it's, if it's an issue in town that somebody's concerned about, um, that can be a fine way to get the conversation started. If it's a process or some aspect of um, how the town is already providing a service, I'd encourage people to reach out for me. Um, I'm not somebody who runs for office. I may not be as um, obviously somebody that a constituent, you know, somebody I've, I've got a concern about the town. Maybe they don't think first to talk to the town manager who they may think is more um, uh, administrative. And in fact, that is where my responsibilities lie. Um, but if the issue is, and we've bumped into this a couple of times recently, if the issue is, you know, how do I get my grievance heard, then I'm more likely to be able to provide direct, quick transparency um, than a select board member even is only because their role is different. So the, the five of them are looking at big issues and making policy decisions and passing ordinances and, you know, looking at financial issues to, to, you know, eventually adopt a budget here in six months from now and, and those sorts of things. And what we're doing with staff is assisting them with that and then doing the day-to-day -day service delivery of town government. And so in that day-to-day -day service delivery, there's a lot of opportunities for folks to access their town government in ways that I think probably feel kind of at least blurry, if not invisible. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's why I push so hard to say, please call me. Please mm -hmm. be in touch with me. If you've got a concern and you think something isn't right, if we talk about it, then at least, you know, maybe we'll agree in the end that, oh, it's okay after all. Or maybe it's some, it'll come 
you know, open my eyes to the fact that there actually is a problem to be addressed. But it's equally likely that maybe all that will happen is the person will understand the process better and be able to access, you know, engage in the dialogue and the decision making more effectively. I'm really. Um, Go ahead. I've noticed that a few of our select board members are very, very um, proactive on Facebook and other forms mm-hmm. of social media about agendas and live streaming and everything else that's happening. And I know our town clerk is incredibly savvy with the social media. Yes. Is that sort of by force of personality or has that been sort of more rolled into people's job descriptions? How do we move sort of beyond personality and into functionality? So, um, what has happened so far in social media platforms is, I, I wouldn't say so much personality, but um, uh, the, the strengths that certain individuals have, both in terms of their technical abilities mm-hmm. um, and using that tool and in um, communication skills. And so, um, so there are individuals who have been on the board, including several that are currently on the board, um, that are very active on social media, making sure that people are being kept informed about what is going on with town governing, governance, and uh, and definitely Hillary from the clerk's office. Um, it's not in Hillary's job description to be on social media platforms pushing that stuff out, but it is a, certainly a role of the town clerk to make sure that the community is well informed about meetings and elections and other aspects of town government, and she's really good at pushing that out. The Your question was... Um, along the lines, I'm not going to get it verbatim, but how, how do we make that more officially part of town government communication? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I don't even mean necessarily like Facebook, but just the idea that um, communication and publicity is not just putting up a sign one place. It's yes. being where people are. It's not making people come to you to listen. It's going where people are already listening. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Um, the platform sort of irrelevant to that to me. I think that it is incumbent upon us, and we've been trying to do better, but I'll, I'll readily admit that it's in limited, cautious steps, um, trying to do better about even using the town's Facebook page, which is not meant to be interactive, but is meant to be just like a bulletin board where we push stuff out, and we're trying to do that um, about everything. You know, We're trying mm-hmm. to do that more aggressively in, and so that at least stuff gets out into that arena mm-hmm. and then individuals who choose to pass it on can pass it on with whatever level of interest and savvy they have. Um, the, the hesitance that you hear in my voice about us institutionalizing a town social media presence beyond using it as a bulletin board to push information out in one direction is... Um, Personally, I'll speak very personally now. I, I am distressed by the degree of um, uh, hostility that is expressed often in partially informed or poorly informed manner. Um, the platform in whichever particular software you might be using, but just mm-hmm. social media in general, um, is a place where people are often arguing and to my experience, um, not often constructively communicating with each other. Mm-hmm. And so while I know it can serve that purpose because it so often doesn't, um, and because we have both statutory obligations and just good governance commitments to making public decisions, making governing decisions in ways that people know how to be there, know when to be there, know what's gonna be discussed there, um, 
I think it's really important that we make sure everybody knows what's going on and when those opportunities exist. And really important that we manage those moments in a way that nobody feels shut down. Um, and if we have to continue on for you know three or four meetings, something we thought we would get done in one, tough mm-hmm. luck because governing can be complicated. But if we attempt to engage more fully in policy dialogue on social media, I, I think we're going to lead to worse governance, not better. I agree. I think you get, you know, you also get into open meeting law violations. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. There's all kinds of dangers there. And then moderation is, can be a terribly complicated thing. <laughs> um, and at the same time in real life, um, moderation and good facilitation is also a terribly complicated thing that I think we could do Very true. as a society much better than just one person with a microphone and a bunch of people sitting on a panel, which is how mm-hmm. we generally do public hearings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Susan Clark, when we interviewed her, she brought up a really good point. She said, you know, one of the, the things about, we happen to be talking about mostly town meeting, mm-hmm. and she said one of the things about town meeting, and Emily pointed to this earlier in the conversation, is it's a great decision-making process. It's not a great deliberative process. And and so, yeah, I think the select board meetings try to bridge that gap mm-hmm. between, you know, having time for deliberative, but then also having decision time. Um, and it may be the best structure we have right now, <laughs> but it would be nice if we could find a better deliberative structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I'm going to... Um, tag on to that question in order to pivot us a little bit being conscious of time and something else we want to talk about so when we think about that deliberative structure Mm -hmm. we have so many people in this community that are so eager to make the world a better place to improve our community to participate to get involved Mm -hmm. and who i think want all of the problems solved at every level because there's we all have so much urgency right now given Mm -hmm. the state of the universe and so thinking about how people know when and where to advocate, what is the role of town, what is the role of state. You know, you sort of pointed to this a little bit about the difference between when you would want to talk to your town manager and when you would mm-hmm. want to talk to the sled board. What is the role of state government? What is mm-hmm. the role of elected officials? What is the role of the Fed? We know that over the last 20 years, a tremendous amount of, pow- of responsibility has been devolved mm-hmm. from the feds to the mm-hmm. state down to the towns, but very little funding or power has exactly. devolved, just responsibility. Yes. So we find ourselves in this place now, and I think you may have some thoughts on that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sorry that you, radio Emily. is such a hard place to talk with your hands as a hand talker. Yeah, I should be sitting on mine actually because <laughs> I keep touching the wires and worrying that I'm messing something up. Um, so um, absolutely, yes. The, the um, Last year in the legislature, as you well know, um, the uh, Vermont League of Cities and Towns urged um, the state legislature to consider and hopefully adopt um, limited self-governance for municipalities in Vermont. And without taking too deep a dive into the um, sort of academic political science background to that, um, the, the short description of why that matters here is because while we've told ourselves the um, sort of reassuring, warm and fuzzy Vermont um, legend that we um, have you know governance by the people at the at the grassroots level? We have town meeting, and isn't it great how you know communities get to govern themselves and all the people get to be involved? Um, the reality is actually that we have you know, if not the most strict um, restrictions, the most restrictive 
um, authority for local government in the country, at least among the two or three states that are the most restrictive, where the power is reserved to the state. And uh, municipalities, it's really very much like a parental-child relationship. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the <laughs> state is the parent, and the, and the municipalities can do only what they are permitted to do um, by, by the uh, state government. And, and that Please feel free to get a little poli-sci, you know, okay. Dylan rule. You could, you could explain rule. it a little so, bit for our listeners. Actually, right, I think so it would be good that you did because it's a phrase you hear at the select board a lot, but I think a I lot will. of people still don't All understand All right, thanks it. for that invitation. I'm sensitive to the timing, and I don't know exactly when we're going to run out of it. So. We like to get deep geeky on here, right, so yeah. even if we good, miss some cool. other stuff, it's worth okay, it. Okay, so my wonk hat goes on, and let me say then that um, the nomenclature is home rule and Dylan's rule, and while it's not a toggle switch, it's actually a continuum, um, over the course of the last century and especially the last 50 years, um, most states in the country um, have um, moved towards the home rule end of that continuum. What that means is that um, in its purest sense in home rule government, um, municipalities can do anything that the state government doesn't prohibit them from doing. In the purest Dillon's rule, which is named for um, a Justice Dillon on the Iowa Supreme Court who wrote a decision in the 1860s that said that municipalities can, uh, can only do what they're explicitly permitted to do. Um, and, and so it's you know, a very, the most pos conservative possible interpretation of how to exercise local authority. Um, that he was ju uh, Justice Dillon, and so Dillon's rule is is just that. And the problem with it is that um, we find ourselves at times um, identifying a positive way forward on a local issue mm -hmm. in ways that aren't going to have any negative impact on anybody outside our community, but being either hamstrung from implementing it or at least finding it to be terribly cumbersome to move forward with a proper solution um, because of what the state imposes as requirements upon upon the municipalities and so um even it's interesting and ironic that e iowa is now one of the strongest home rule states <laughs> because they've changed their state constitution and their state statutes over time since 1860s um in a way that reflect um you know sort of modern governance and the need to have more nimble responsive mm -hmm. um engaging local government and, and Sorry, uh, I just want to jump in and, and give people an example because it's, it make it a little more concrete. You're so good at that. <laughs> mm. If I remember correctly, a few years ago, I think Gartenstein was still on the board, so it's mm -hmm. been a few years, there was talk about ch making changes to Route 30 mm -hmm. out by the retreat farm. Yes. And one of the things the select board wanted to do and the community members wanted to do who live on that stretch of Route 30 between like the bridge and downtown yes. is to change the speed limit from what, 50 to 30 or 50 to 40. 40. Mm -hmm. And the select board was like, yeah, let's do this. It's in the town limits. But because Route 30 is a state road, yes. you guys actually had to go through the V-Trans. Yes changing process and it took yes. quite a while. So that's exactly right. And in the end, on that particular example, we didn't even have the authority to make the decision in the end. If VTrans had said, no, it's going to stay 50, it would have stayed 50. So um, th that's, that's a really good example of a, of a situation where um, we believed strongly that it was in everybody's best interest for the safety of everybody using the road as well as for the community's best interest because of the changing uses out there and the you know lots of recreation occurring in that corridor um, that that it was important for it not to return to 50 it had been 50 prior to the i-91 bridge project 
Then it had been reduced to 40 just because of the construction zone. And the issue was, as, as we came out of that construction project, would they bring it back up to 50 or not? And VTrans ended up understanding what was being um, presented locally and supported that and left it at 40. So that was a good outcome. Um, if I might cite another couple of examples mm -hmm. of, of things. Um, so um, this is Arcane, and <laughs> Emily's heard me say it before. But it's not insignificant if you're the person who lives on the street or uses the area frequently and, and um, needs a responsive local government action that um, to change a speed limit, even in an area where we control the road, where it's ah. a, a, a town road and where we do all the maintenance and make all the rules, um, to change a speed limit, you have to do a um, traffic study. The state statute requires that you do a traffic study up to certain standards, so you're paying for engineering, and then satisfy VTrans, again, they get to look at your traffic study and look at your proposed alteration of the speed limit and decide whether they think that's justified or not before you can move forward with an ordinance at the local level to actually make that change. And we're talking about situations where it might be as simple as, um, you know, 35 down to 30 in a, in a place where it used to be all businesses and now there's some homes that have been built or those kinds of circumstances where a local government ought to be able to just see a local need, work with local people around the solution and then implement it without all this red tape. Because on Route 30, on some level, it makes sense to me that the state would get involved because it's a it's a road that connects one town to another. So the Correct. same way, if we're looking at the relationship between the federal government and the state government, we have interstate commerce laws that right. we can make laws that control within our borders. But if we're crossing borders, right. we so have to talk to this, you know, so we want to talk to the national government. So in this case, exactly. Route 30 binds communities together. Yes. There's a lot of tourists touching yes. it. So maybe the state should have some control. But if we're talking about, say, Elliott Street, exactly. only local people are engaged right. in that. Right. Or even it gets a little more nuanced than that when you think about something like Western Avenue, right? So in Western Avenue, there's a long length of it out past um, exit two out into the village that is town responsibility. And then as you get out west of the village, it becomes a state road and Route 9 going over the mountains. So... Um, Again, the, the state has a very significant role to play if we were talking about that outer edge of Brattleboro on Marlboro Road. But, you know, in the area, like we're, we're looking at some things right now related to potential bike lanes and speed limit issues and parking issues along the corridor in between Exit 2 and downtown on Western Avenue. And thankfully, we've got a receptive VTrans that's our partner and working with us. We just received a grant. We just received news that we will receive a grant um, for about $40,000 that's going to help with studying that to come up with an, a, you know, a solution that is acceptable to the engineers um, that will also, there's a huge element of that to today's theme that is um, part of the public engagement so that we get all the different, you know, the property owners along there, the bicyclists, the motorists, the businesses, all the different folks, and anybody in the community who's interested in this is going to have a chance to participate in helping us shape a plan for what do we want to do in that corridor that's going to set us up to be, you know, safer and more functional for the next, you know, several decades. When that's done, that's going to have to still be approved by VTrans because it's Route 9, mm -hmm. even though that segment of Route 9 functions as an in-town roadway rather than an inter-town highway. Uh, My so. son's just started finally um, biking back and forth from our house way out in West Brad <laughs> on the edge of Guilford into town fairly regularly. Uh, and yesterday we were in Burlington and he was like, whoa, there are really bike lanes here. And mm -hmm. I was like, there are. And he's like, bike lanes are great. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about what you're proposing the legislature do to solve this problem. Sure. So um, the uh, S-106 was the bill in the Senate that, that passed 21 to 8 last year after some extensive review um, in the Senate Government Operations Committee. Um, and um, it, it did, as we move over into the House with that bill this year, um, we will be having some conversations about some of the concerns we have about things that got tacked onto it mm. um, because what had been meant to be an experiment um, has now been limited in ways that we think is going to limit the value of the experiment. But we'll have an opportunity in the months ahead to have a more full conversation about that. In the meantime, the essence of it was um, modeled after um, a very successful program that happened down in West Virginia, which was also one of the most uh, you know, on that Dillon's rule, home rule continuum, it's way out at the Dillon's rule uh, end, end of that, where the state was very controlling. Similar place in, t in the sense of it being a small state and a rural state, and, and it, in certain respects, because of the little tiny towns that dot the map, mm -hmm. um, it makes some sense for there to be strong uh, state control, st state, strong state involvement in the service delivery. But not for everybody, right? There are larger places that have more capacity that ought to have more authority to govern themselves. And so West Virginia saw that about a decade ago and um, adopted on a very tentative basis. For the first five years, it was an opportunity only for five communities to participate, but they liked what they saw. So it's um, like a pilot of sorts? In, mm -hmm. a, in a pilot program of self-governance, they, they screened the communities that were wanting to exercise some additional authority. They saw plans from those communities about how they would exercise the additional authority and they decided who would participate in the program when they got to the end of the first 10 years they were so happy with the performance that they adopted it again um, actually i'm sorry the first five years they adopted it for another five years they added in additional communities um, and then this past year when they came to the end of 10 full years of experimenting with it they actually adopted it into permanent law in west virginia that now basically they've become a home rule state. So what we're asking is that Vermont take that first baby step to create a pilot program where only certain municipalities who have been screened and approved by the state would be allowed to exercise limited home rule powers um, and then see how we do. And if you think that we're actually um, improving the quality of local government by being more responsive and by coming up with better and more creative solutions, um, you know, let a few more try it. And eventually we hope that we'll have the same outcome as they did down in West Virginia where um, people will see that this is a better way to govern ourselves on the local level um, and the state would open up, you know, home rule on a broader basis. Because what I'm continually struck by is the fact that citizens at the local level expect you to solve all of the problems. Mm -hmm. When I talk to other legislators, they often, um, in much smaller towns, a huge part of what their end of session report is about or their town meeting report is about road conditions. Right. And I was like, no one ever talks to me about road conditions. They talk to the town about road conditions, <laughs> yes. right? And so, like, especially in a place as large as Brattleboro, I think our citizens really look to you to solve right. most problems. And, and we so it want makes them sense. To. We just yeah. want to be empowered to do it. So <laughs> it's, you know, I think authority, responsibility really need to match up with each other. Absolutely. And we often, so often in this life, we have one and not the other. And we know what happens when that. Mm -hmm. We wind up with teenagers. Well said. So I, I'm just going to ask the devil's advocate question mm -hmm. here. So you reach, you outlined some really good reasons to have more home rule. But in a state as small as Vermont, mm -hmm. I can also see why the state may want more, more control because it could give economies of scale. Mm -hmm. So how do you balance 
is that a problem? If will you lose that economy of scale, or how do you balance that? Have you thought about that at yes, all? Yes. So I I think if you empower local government, um, those of us who operate on a scale that is um, has enough capacity, and where we have the interest and commitment to take on that additional responsibility, empower us to make those choices. Being a home rule municipality doesn't mean that you're going to exercise, in fact, it explicitly doesn't mean you're gonna exercise all of the authorities available to you um, or exercise them in the same way as your neighbors or the other municipalities across the state because the beauty of home rule is that you do in your community what makes sense for your community on the scale that your community can afford. And, and so by having that true local control instead of sort of mythical local control, um, the municipalities can decide how reliant to remain on the state versus how independent to be with our own actions and our own responsibilities. Um, there are a lot of little tiny towns in Vermont that um, have little to no commercial activity and lots of woods and um, places that most likely will want to remain more or less in the status quo, even if they have the ability to mm-hmm. uh, become, you know, more exercise, more home rule powers. But um, up and down the state, there's also at least a few dozen communities that could really benefit from having some authority to go along with the responsibility we already feel. So I'm going to go a little deeper on this devil's advocate. When I think about this in the context of state and national level decisions, mm-hmm. um, often we want to remove, we want to bring power up to the highest level because of bias that happens at the local level. So um, Jim Crow laws, for instance, would be a good example, Mm -hmm. right? And so if we have different towns in Vermont able to make different decisions about maybe um, voting access Mm. or um, Mm -hmm. civil unions. Sure. How does how does that play itself out? Yeah. So constitutional matters remain constitutional matters. And so it the way it plays itself out is we don't get that authority, <laughs> um, even in the states that have the broadest home rule authority for local governments. Um, they don't get to control laws about marriage or um, elections other than to some limited degree for the local conduct of local elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even there, that's usually um, set out in statute. And um, we already have pretty um, surprising discretion in sort of access to the ballot box in right. Vermont, given like the hours that town clerks are open and stuff like that. Exactly, mm-hmm. and yeah. early voting mm-hmm. you know, and all that stuff. So, I, yes, I, 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 it's a danger. What you describe is, is, is a real danger, but um, because this home rule, Dillon's rule continuum is a continuum and not a toggle switch, what we're, we're not talking about... Um, setting municipalities free to act like little countries where they're going to make up all our own rules. We still have to function within the the state's constitution and the national constitution. And um, what we're really talking about is just being more nimble and more accessible and more um, creative in responding to local challenges. And Mm -hmm. those can be, you know, social equity kind of challenges like we've been facing a lot of in our community this summer versus, you know, really practical, boring things like parking and speed limits. And I do think that the more authority is connected to decisions, the more people will yeah. be willing and interested in showing up to help make those decisions. Mm-hmm. And so that's a really important part of this for me, too. Yeah. And, and the more people feel like what they say makes a difference. Yeah. And showing up makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have just about five more minutes before we're going to let you go, Peter. Is there anything you wanted to add? Wish we had asked anything else going on at the town level you think people should know about? 
Olga always asks this question, so always be prepared for you, it yeah, anytime she you, talks to you about anything. This is the first time you've heard this. <laughs> <laughs> and it always throws me for a loop. <laughs> so we, we in, in our past lives, have landed on that question when there was a le- about 30 seconds left and we had covered the topic for the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't come with a, a pitch to make or uh, uh, any other particular topic to share, um, other than, I guess, just to reiterate that on this topic, I'm glad you're taking it up this topic. I'm glad you're looking at it with a broader view to, you know, like what's good for democracy mm-hmm. in Brattleboro, in Vermont, in our country. Um, I think this is a really exciting time, even though, again, some of the drivers of why it has become exciting are not so happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a really exciting time to be looking at these issues and be engaged in this work because um, it, th- that sense of urgency is real mm-hmm. that we're feeling. And I'm seeing in Brattleboro a level of engagement that, you know, for my five years here is the highest level of broad public participation that we've seen. Mm-hmm. And that's healthy for democracy. I like that you said five years here because I would like on next season of the Montpelier Happy Hour that we really have folks who have devoted their lives to democracy mm-hmm. to come in and have conversations about really sort of more of a Krista Tippett on being kind of thing and talk sure. about like, you are a family of government. You live in a government family and mm-hmm. you came up through a government family. Mm-hmm. And so like mm-hmm. really curious about like, what part of your spirit drives you to this work? Because I think it's okay. quite an understatement for you to say you're five years in Brattleboro. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and let's be fair too, you were several years uh, shepherding another community. So thanks for all that, and I'm happy to come back and have that yeah. fuller conversation. Um, it is more complicated, but what I'm speaking to very much directly on this topic, mm-hmm. because I have experienced Brattleboro so differently as a you know late middle-aged adult than I did as a kid, um, and as town manager, that it really is for me important, and I think important for the community, that just in this five-year window, we have seen so much additional participation. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, not just more people, but a broader cross-section of people engaging mm-hmm. in town decision-making. It's quite wonderful. That is Thank the you. part to me that's most exciting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Peter Elwell, town manager for the town of Brattleboro. Thank you so much for making time for us today. And Thank you both. Back. Bye. And uh, we will set you free to, to spend the rest of your day. We are going to go to some quick promos, everybody, and say goodbye to Peter. So hang tight. We shall return in a moment. <laughs>